it that is continued today. And the idea behind the Reformation was that the church needed to reform. You may have often heard this kind of uh, idea. And the idea is this, that things that don't change, they do what? They die. Things that don't change, they do what? They die, right? And that may be a true statement, but if we leave it at just that, it may be an unhelpful statement as well, right? Because what that leaves us to is the idea that then everything is meaningless and that it doesn't really matter how you change. If you just change, then you're going to be okay. And then we end up with the current cultural climate that we have where everything goes, right? Or as the Bible puts it, like in the book of Judges, everyone did what was according or was right according to their own eyes, their own statements. We don't want to just be a people who change for the sake of change, because change without any purpose is meaningless, right? Uh, we want to be a people who change because of who God is, what he has done, and our faith through him according to his word. So church, we need to, in light of the Reformation, be a people who change not for the sake of change, but change according to grow in light of what Scripture clearly teaches us. Okay. So this week and next week, as you come to church, I want to just prepare your hearts to think through what is the role of the Bible in my life as an individual, but also in our life together here as Hebrew Church of Hope. As we do that, I think that we're going to be encouraged by God's Word, we're going to be sustained by God's Word, and we're going to be empowered by God's word to live for his glory. So today, my goal is to teach you this, that we believe the Bible, right? Easiest sermon I've ever preached. Okay, see you guys later, right? <laughs> no, no, it's not that simple. It is a very core truth to who we are. But I think there is a temptation within Christianity to say things that we mean without really explaining what we mean. So I'm going to explain for you this morning from our statement of faith, from 2 Timothy chapter 3, and from the Reformation, what we mean when we say we believe the Bible. Because I'm going to tell you this, that everything stands or falls upon what we teach from this pulpit Sunday to Sunday. The center of the life of this church comes from the preaching of the word from this church. If it comes just from my opinions or the opinions of our elders or from what's going on in the cultural climate around us, what the media proclaims, you're not going to have any good news. <laughs> we need the news of the Bible, brothers and sisters. We need to come back to that key truth that the Bible is sufficient for us, it's authoritative to us, and it is indeed the word of God given to us so that we may know him and glorify him. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray, and we're going to dive into our sermon for this morning. Lord God, we come to you in search of what it is that you have said. God, we don't want to just be a people who are filled up with stuff. We want to be a people who are filled with your word. And we don't just want to know it. We want it to seek into our hearts. And we want to be changed by it. Would you help us now? Oh, Holy Spirit, would you help us now? Give us ears to hear. Father, would you be gracious again? Lord Jesus, would you remind us of what it is that you've done? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Words mean a lot, don't they? You can take somebody at their word or you can not believe their word. Words mean a lot to us. What people say is important, right? We've heard probably the children saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. What a terrible lie, right? What a terrible lie that we tell children. Words do indeed hurt people. Sticks and stones also hurt. I can give you personal testimony to that. But words are important. Words do matter. It was by the speaking of the word that God brought everything into existence. It is by the speaking of the word of Jesus that we see the light of God brought to us. Words matter. What we believe about the word, the word of God, particularly is important to us as a church. 
we believe the Bible. What do we mean by that? Well, first, I want to start with this idea. We believe that the Bible is indeed God's word. Okay, so if you're taking notes, there are going to be three points for you. First is this. We believe the Bible is God's word. We believe the Bible is God's word. Second, we believe that the Bible is God's breathed out word. God's breathed out word or inspired word. Okay? And then third, the third idea is going to be this. We believe the Bible is God's inerrant word. God's inerrant word. It is his word without error. Okay? So those are the three ideas for our sermon this morning. We're going to look at 2 Timothy 3, kind of help us to launch out from there to see a then biblical theology. Okay, this is not our normal exposition of one particular passage. We're developing a theological framework from God's word to show us what we believe about the Bible. We believe that it is God's word, that it is breathed out by him, and that it is inerrant. 2 Timothy 3, if you have your Bible, please open there. 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 14. Verse 14. Paul is obedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, that they'll be brutal, that they'll be without love for what is good, they'll be traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form, and this is to avoid these people. These are the people of the day. They're going to say that they believe in the power of godliness, but they're going to deny it. We're to avoid these people. And then, starting in verse 10, he starts to tell him that in light of these kind of troubles, his ultimate call is to endure. Right? He doesn't give him the, the wonderful coaching call where he's like, you can do this, it's going to be awesome, go ahead and go do it, right? We all like that little pep rally cheer. But that's not the pep rally cheer of Paul. Paul's cheer to Timothy is more like this. Timothy, it's going to stink, endure. Stay faithful, brother. Stay right at it. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be fun. But you have to stay in the Lord. Stay in the Lord. I think a lot of us are looking for the first pep rally call, and we don't like the second one, right? It's not as tasty to us, but it's what we need. It's what's faithful to the truth. It's not going to be pretty, but stand to it. So in verse 14, he starts with this. We're going to be the kind of the center of our building block for the sermon. It says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. In light of all of these things, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We believe the Bible is God's word. We need scripture, brothers and sister. Notice what he says here, right in verses 14 and 15. Timothy, continue in what you have learned from those who have taught you, and from infancy you have known what is called the sacred scriptures. Okay? So in 2 Timothy chapter 1, we hear the testimony that Timothy came to faith in, in verse 8. He tells us that he came to faith by knowing uh, the testimony that was in his grandmother Lois. This is actually verse 5. His grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice com confessed and proclaimed to him the truth that they call the scriptures. He lays it out right here to say the sacred scriptures. We believe in what we call the canon of the Bible. The canon of the Bible is the books of the Old Testament and the books of the New Testament. The Old Testament canon is actually in view here when Paul writes to him and says, you have believed in the sacred scriptures. The earliest collection of the written words of God, we can actually see first in the Bible and what we've got in the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. As God delivered the Ten Commandments to the people, he told Moses that he was to take these things, write them on stone tablets, and to store them away so that the people of God could continue to come back to them and look at them again and again. 
the, can- the canon continued to expand from Moses' words in the Ten Commandments out to through what we would call the office of the prophets. So we see this in the example of Samuel, who was one of the first prophets. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 25, it says this, Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. He continued to add the writings of the teachings, what was happening, and store them away with the Ten Commandments. This didn't just continue with Samuel, it went on to, the, to King David. In 1 Chronicles 29, 29, it says, The Acts of King David, from the first to last, are written in the Chronicles of Samuel the seer, in the Chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and the Chronicles of Gad the seer. Through David's kingship, he had three different people who were continuing to write what God was doing and how he was working among his people, what he was instructing them to do. They were taking notes. (laughs) Isaiah continued to write the the words of God to his people, like what we see in 2 Chronicles 26-22. The rest of the Acts of Isaiah, from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote... Jeremiah also continued writing down the very words that God spoke to his people. Like in Jeremiah 30, verse 2, where it says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. But the Old Testament canon closed with the prophet Malachi. Malachi wrote in 435 B.C. So there's the Old Testament part of the canon, but there's also the New Testament part of the canon. And this is really particularly the writing of what God is doing in redemptive history. So this point we've seen from Moses that there was the, the creation of the world that was written through him, the Ten Commandments that were written through him. Then we see through Joshua, he writes about the conquest and these other figures that we just laid out from the prophets, what they were communicating, what God was communicating and doing through his people. And what that was ultimately pointing to was that there was going to be someone who comes, Malachi's words, who was going to come after them to be the Messiah to save God's people. The New Testament canon begins where the old ends. This idea that there was going to be a Messiah then picks up with the writing of the apostles. You may say, why the apostles? Well, primarily, it's connected to redemptive history. Malachi ending with that awaiting for the, the Messiah, and now the Messiah is going to arrive. We see the apostles start right with what? With Matthew, Matthew 1, 1 begins pointing us to the person of Jesus. Jesus was going to be the one who would come to rescue God's people. The apostles, according to the New Testament, were given the ability from the Holy Spirit to recall accurately the words and deeds of Jesus and to interpret them rightly for the coming generations. I want you guys just to flip quickly over to, um, to John chapter 16, or John 14, I'm sorry, John 14. Go to John 14. In this passage, we often see a clear teaching about the Holy Spirit and his role. And we think of it individually for ourselves. But this is actually Jesus speaking to the disciples and telling him that there was going to be someone who would come to be the, the one who would help them keep the promise. So in John 14, in verse 25, it says this. Jesus speaking to the disciples says, I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send me in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have told you. Jesus is telling the apostles, right? at this point they're disciples, they become apostles after they witness the resurrection, these 12 disciples, that the Holy Spirit is going to enable them to remember the things that Jesus has spoken. And in the Great Commission, think Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe what? Everything that I have commanded you. The only way they can observe everything that Jesus has commanded is if they have a record of what Jesus has commanded. So the apostles are given this call by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to record the words 
and life of Jesus and what he has done and what he has taught for them. But the apostles aren't just the, the, the 12 or what would be 11, right, that come from gathering with Jesus. We also see the apostle Paul. What do we do with him, right? He's a, a weird guy in the New Testament, right? Primarily because, yeah, he was like killing Christians before he was converted, right? So that's a little bit of a conflict of interest, right? <laughs> but he's, he's somebody who will come to, and we'll talk about it in just a, a second, but we do see that Paul was called by Jesus and given authority by Jesus, Galatians chapter 1, to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus, that he witnessed the resurrected Jesus in Acts chapter 9. If we were to take all of the books of the New Testament and lay them out, we would have apostolic authority on all but five books in the New Testament. That is apostolic authority, that is that an apostle was directly involved in writing all of the books of the New Testament minus five books. What are those five books? Luke and Acts, right? Luke was not an apostle. But what we do find out is that Luke was affirmed to give an accurate representation of the life of Jesus by Paul. So Paul confirms that Luke and Acts are appropriate books for Christians to read and to see as God's word. When we have Mark and Jude, these are two real weird little books in the Bible, right? The Gospel of Mark, quick, very rapid fire. Jude is a short little book in the end that's like declaring that they're going to be these prophets, that they're going to be the end times are coming, and they're going to be evil deceivers. And Peter actually gives apostolic authority to both Mark and and Jude. He can confirm that these are, uh, these are accurate accounts of Jesus, of his teachings, because he has a relationship with both Mark and Jude, and within the forming of the canon, he would be able to say, yes, indeed, this is what Jesus said. Yes, indeed, this is the sermon that I gave, and yes, indeed, this is indeed the true words of Jesus and Jude. The only book that leaves us kind of hanging is the book of Hebrews, which we've been preaching through, right? <laughs> and the book of Hebrews, it, it's difficult because to us, we don't see a known author. But according to scholars, many of the first century Christians attributed the book uh, and its writing to the Apostle Paul. But beyond apostolic authority, we need to look at the content of Hebrews and affirm that it is indeed part of the canon of Scripture because of its content, which is so Christocentric. You think through uh, Hebrews 1, starts with the person of Jesus who spoke long ago through the prophets and in many ways, and then continues to focus in on how Jesus is better than Moses, he's better than the angels, he's better than Melchizedek, he is the greater sacrifice that's come for us, he is the one in whom we have faith, the one that we persevere through. The entire book is all about the person and work of Jesus. So, with confidence, we can say that the book of Hebrews does indeed belong in the New Testament. We believe the Bible, that the Bible is the word of God, that it does indeed account for us an accurate representation of what God has done, what he is like, who he is, and what he has said to us as his people. In both the Old and New Testament books that we see in the Bible, all 66 books that we have here in our leather-bound copies or hardcover copies, whatever you've got, are indeed the words of God. So what doesn't belong in the Bible? Well, what doesn't belong in the Bible and what the Reformers would be particularly fighting in, in the 16th century was the idea that, of the Apocrypha, or what's called the intertestamental writings, or by what we would call Roman Catholic sympathizers, the Deuter deuterocanonical books of the Bible. Now, deuter in Greek means second giving, right? The book of Deuteronomy, this is the idea, the second giving of the law. So the intertestamental writings, according to the Roman Catholic Church, were scripture because they were a second giving of what Jesus was, or what God was doing through his people. This includes books like the first and second Maccabees, includes Ecclesiasticus, right? They got really uh, cute with their name giving in the books here. But Protestants would say that these books are not part of the canon. They don't belong in the Bible. And there are four reasons that I'll give you 
for why they don't belong in the Bible. The first is that if you actually read the Apocrypha, you'll see very clearly that they don't claim the same kind of authority as the Old Testament. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't even say that they claim the same kind of authority as the Old Testament. They say that they are sacred teachings of the church that could be useful. That's their language, not mine. Okay? Sacred teachings of the church that could be useful. They're not authoritative. That's reason number one. The second reason that they don't belong in the canon of Scripture is because they weren't regarded as Scripture by Jewish people. If you look within Judaism, there would not be any affirmation from anyone within the Jewish camp that the Apocrypha or the intertestamental writings are indeed Scripture, God's very words. They would not affirm that. So they don't have that kind of authority. They're not affirmed to have authority. Third is that they were not considered to be Scripture by Jesus or the New Testament authors. There are only a couple of handful of places, actually not even a handful of places, maybe one or two places in the New Testament where there's some sort of writing that has a connection to intertestamental writings, but nobody in the New Testament claims to quote the books that we find in the Apocrypha. Therefore, we can conclude that the New Testament authors and Jesus himself would not have viewed the Apocrypha as scripture. You're, you're welcome. And maybe the most clear flaw we can see in the Apocrypha is that there are just flat-out inconsistencies. They get geography wrong. They get dates of events wrong. They get locations and, and things that have happened wrong. There are at least a dozen instances in which we can see uh, inconsistencies and discrepancies within the Apocrypha. So the Apocrypha, friends, does not belong in the canon of the Bible. As you're listening to me, I can see everybody's face going, what's the big deal? <laughs> Why is this important? Well, friends, I want you to understand this, that if we say we believe the Bible to be the canon of Scripture, we are saying what is indeed God's words and what is not. That has great weight for us as God's people. Because if we get the words of God wrong, we misrepresent him. And we proclaim that we believe in somebody that we don't actually think lines up with what he says. It, we have to follow a logical pattern here, friends. If we don't believe that God is who he says he is, and he has said what he has said, then for we call God a liar. And we no longer worship a perfect God. What we believe about the Bible is extremely important. So we must believe that the Bible is indeed God's word. So then how did God give us the Bible? Well, that's the second idea. We believe that the Bible was breathed out by God. Again, back to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. How many of you, let's do a little Bible exercise right now, okay? How many of you have a little letter or number next to inspired by God? Right after God right there. Anybody? Looking at your Bibles, got a letter. Oh, Josue's got a letter. That's good. And we're okay, Elke, yes, Darren. Glorious, glorious. If you go to the bottom of your page on your Bible, what does it say? Breathed out by God. It probably says L-I-T period, breathed out in italics by God. That is the translators of your Bible giving you a translation note that's helpful to you. The word inspiration is the Greek word that literally means to breathe out. We believe that the Bible is breathed out by God. That is that God is the author of the Bible. That he used humans, yes indeed, but he breathed out, he gave to us what it is that we see in Scripture. How can we have confidence that this is true? I think there are a few ideas. First, we can recognize from the Bible itself that it claims to be the words of God. How many of you have heard the Old Testament phrase, thus says the Lord? 
You should have because there are 417 occurrences of that phrase in the Old Testament. 417 times the Old Testament says this is what God has said. We can have confidence that the Bible is indeed the word of God. Not only that, but there are clearly identified places where God speaks through the prophets to his people. Places where he says, Ezekiel, go and say this to my people. God goes and speaks through the prophets to his people. In the New Testament passages, like what we have here in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out. The Greek for scripture here is the word, the word graphe, which is a reference to the Old Testament. And it's used 51 times in the New Testament to reference the Old Testament scriptures. So what it's saying here is all scripture, all of the Old Testament, all of what we see in the writings that we have is breathed out by God 51 times in the New Testament, that word, graphe, is used for Scripture to mean that. Breathing out is to be a metaphor for speaking the words of the Bible. Notice also that within the New Testament, there are a couple of times where the writings in the New Testament themselves are called Scripture. Like in 2 Peter 3, 16, where Peter calls all of Paul's writings along with the other scriptures. He uses the word scripture to identify Paul's writings and the other writings of the New Testament. In 1 Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy, Paul quotes Jesus from Luke 10, 7, and he says, this is scripture. We can have confidence from the Bible itself by its own claim that the Bible is indeed the very breathed out word of God. But not just from its quotation of itself, we can also have confidence that the Bible is the word of God by reading the Bible. The more we progress in reading the Bible, we see the claims of the Bible to be true. I, I guarantee you this, I've, I've actually given this to people who have questioned the authority of the Bible. I said, I'll read the Bible with you for 30 days, and you tell me after those 30 days whether you think that it's true or not true. Nobody's followed me through with it, right? And I, th I think that that may be the Lord's providence of working through maybe some fear. What if he's right? Now, brothers and sisters, you go and read the Bible for 30 days and tell me whether or not you're more confident in the Lord. What do you think is going to happen? I think you're going to grow in your confidence of God's word. Regular Bible reading does indeed build our confidence in God because we see what he has said, we see the claims that he makes, and we grow in our assurance and confidence of what he has done. I think of the passage from John chapter 10, particularly as we come to this idea. John 10, 27 says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. By reading the Bible, God works in the written words of the Bible in our hearts and in our minds to show us who he is and what he has done. And in that, we have confidence. There are two particular objections to the idea that God has breathed out the Bible that I want you to be aware of that I think will be helpful to you. The first is the objection to the idea of dictation. That when we say that God authored the Bible that we are saying that it had to be perfectly dictated by God in every instance. That's the objection. When we say that God authored the Bible, we are not limiting his writing of the Bible through solely to the process of dictation. God communicated to the biblical authors in a variety of processes to bring about what we see within the canon of Scripture. I'll give you some examples. Revelation 2.1. This is dictation on display. Jesus says to John the Apostle in Revelation 2.1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write this. That is dictation. Isaiah 38, verses 4 through 6 say, The word of the Lord came to Isaiah and said, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, of your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and will defend the city. That is indeed dictation. God's saying, go and write this, go and speak this. But there are other types of communication 
like what we see in Hebrews 1.1. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets at many times and in, guess the word, many ways. At many times and in many ways. Luke 1, 1 through 3, says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that have, we have been delivered, it seemed also good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke's writing to Theophilus saying, I am undertaking a research project to compile the things that Jesus has done. Okay? Many times, many ways, Luke's own words saying, I'm compiling a, thing, a list of the things that Jesus has done. Now, those are the two great, or one of the greatest uh, objections to inspiration, that it means solely just dictation. It doesn't. Okay? We don't see the Bible use that. The second objection is what we call circular reasoning, where people say that we have a circular argument. We do something like this. We believe that Scripture is God's Word because it claims to be. And we believe it claims to be because Scripture is God's Word. You see the circle? Scripture is God's Word. And why do we claim that? Because Scripture claims to be. They say that that's a circular argument. Well, there might be some truth to that, but does that discredit what it actually is really becomes a question. And the answer to that is no. That does not invalidate the claim. It does not invalidate the claim. Because really the truth is that, is that everyone uses circular argumentation in one way or another. Think of it with your parenting. Like when Maeve says, can I have a snack? And I say no, and she goes, why? Because I said so, right? <laughs> The infamous line, right? <laughs> I use it within coaching when I'm coaching soccer players. I say, coach, can we go to this? And I said, no. Why? Because I said so, <laughs> right? This is what I've said, therefore you got to do it. <laughs> so how do we then apply the idea that we need God-breathed words in the Bible? I think there are three things that I want you to learn from that, friends, that God breathes out the Bible. The first really is an application to us as the church. Churches need expositional sermons. I will die on that hill. I will gladly die on the hill of our need for exposition. What do I mean by that? Churches, what you need here Sunday from Sunday, gathered body, Christians, brothers and sisters, what you need to hear is God's word. I'm thankful for moments like this to stop and to, to look at the entirety of the Bible and try to give you some sort of theology of the Bible. But what you need greater than this is like what we've been doing in Hebrews. We need to hear God's word in its context with its message applied to us. That's what we need. You don't just need five more steps of ways to do things. You don't need a motivational speech. What you need is the Word of God. Trampoline sermons can be useful, but what they do is they take God's Word, they use it to bounce off to another place to say something that they want to say. What they do is they take God's Word and they say it's authoritative and they demean the authority. They say, this is important, but only as important as it is so that I can jump off to talk about what I really want to talk about, right? Brothers, sisters, that's not what you need. You need the word of God. You don't just need what I want to talk about or what Caleb or Joe wants to talk about or any other preacher that comes up here. You don't just need what we want. You need what Peter said to Jesus. You need the word of life. That only comes from the Bible, from exposing God's word. You need expositional sermons. Now, it's not to say that we don't need a theological sermon here or there. They can be useful, but we have to remember that taking in God's word is like feasting on a meal, right? Y'all like candy? 300 plus kids yesterday really liked candy outside of the church, right? I think my daughter Maeve ate like eight to 10 lollipops, 
she's probably going to lose a tooth to, like today, right? <laughs> Exaggeration, but it was a lot of candy, right? But you know what? I, I saw this actually happen twice. There were two kids that came through yesterday. They were sitting in their strollers, and they just looked miserable. And I was like, oh, man, are you all right? Like, what's going on? And both of their parents said this. They ate too much candy. Sorry, friends. If you're here this morning, child, yes, you can indeed eat too much candy. I know. It's really disappointing news, but it is true news. Guys, when you eat too much candy, it upsets your stomach. The topical sermons of the church, the theological sermons of the church are like candy. They taste good. They have their place. But they're not the meat and potatoes. We need meat and potatoes regularly. We need a balanced meal, not just one that's all the things that we like. We need something that feeds us and sustains us because the reality is that we burn through sugar like that, right? But when you have a good steak, it lasts forever. We need expositional sermons. Christian, therefore, you need to be expositional listeners. Brothers and sisters who proclaim to have faith in Jesus this morning, you have a direct responsibility for what is preached from the pulpits of the churches that you gather to. If you gather here Sunday to Sunday, you have a responsibility to make sure that this pulpit stays faithful to the word. That is indeed my great task as a shepherd of this church. Whoever comes here, whoever preaches from this, is preaching from the word. To guard that. To, yes, be indeed even particular about that. But Christian, you, as you listen to sermons, have to ask yourself the following questions. Is what is being preached consistent with the Bible? Is it consistent with the Bible? Is it faithful to the Bible? Does it explain the Bible? One big one, did I hear the gospel? Did somebody tell me that Jesus died for my sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the grave, and the only way that I'm made right with him is through repentance and faith? Did I hear the gospel? How does it tell me about God? A lot of people are coming into churches to hear messages where they say, what can I take away? You know what you need to hear, brothers and sisters? What you need to think through as you're listening to sermons is not, what can I take, but who is God? What has he done? What is he like? It's only after we answer that question that we can ultimately go to the personal application of, how does this then address me as a human? In light of what God has said, what he has done, what this message is, in light of the gospel, how then do I respond to this word? Churches need Christians who are expositional listeners. Listen for the word. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, that's because the world needs a divine message. Do you believe that? The world needs a divine message. Yeah, we got politicians that are telling us things. Are they living up to it? Nope. Our bank account's telling us some things. <laughs> maybe some good things, maybe some bad things. <laughs> but it's always changing. Our family's going to tell us something because they love us, right? Or maybe they don't really want to show that love, and so maybe they're not communicating that. You're going to hear a message from them. But what do we need? What does the world need? The world needs a divine message of a divine Savior who has come to redeem a godless people. The world needs that light. They need that word, not the other things that they're hearing. We believe the Bible is the word of God, that it's breathed out by God. And finally, we believe that the Bible is God's inerrant word. What is inerrancy? Wayne Grudem says this. He says that scripture, inerrancy is scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to the fact. Scripture in its original manuscript does not affirm anything that is contrary to the fact. Our statement of faith, I like better, puts it like this, that scripture's message is truth without error. 
and its content. Scripture's message is truth without error in its content. It's the idea that the Bible always tells the truth and that it always tells the truth concerning everything that it talks about. The Bible always tells the truth and it always tells the truth concerning everything that it talks about. So what about the Bible's truthfulness should you know? First, this is what you need to know. The Bible can be inerrant and still speak in ordinary language. How do I know that's true? Because the Bible says that the sun rises and sets. And that's true. The Bible also says that it rains. And I have seen rain. It is indeed true. The same can be true about numbers in the Bible. A reporter can say something that has happened to a certain amount of people, say like, 8,000 people were affected by this, and that could be 7,999 or 8,001 and still be an accurate, consistent report. What's really at question there is not so much whether it's true, it's a a measure of precision, right? But inerrancy isn't about precision, it's about truthfulness. The Bible is true. The Bible can, therefore, make inerrancy Uh, can be inerrant and still make loose or free quotations, right? Like yesterday, uh, in our English language, first of all, we use direct quotations, right? So I I like to say, Rachel told me this, right? And what she actually told me, I may summarize to somebody else and say, hey, Rachel told me this, that we're going to have an awesome lunch, and it's going to be great, and everybody's coming over our house, and it's going to be a wonderful time we know that that's not the message she just told me, right? Just by her body language. But if she said, hey, let's have some people over for lunch, I could say that and I'd still be accurate, right? Exaggerated, but accurate (laughs) to the message. It's like yesterday when we were getting ready for uh, the, the Harvest Moon Festival, Joe told me that it was nice outside. That's true. But in my communication with Joe, he could have actually said to me, hey, Jordan, it's 67 degrees and I am sweating. Don't bring a sweater. That was more like it. (laughs) We can use loose quotations and still be accurate. Why? Because in Greek and Hebrew, there were no punctuation marks. There were no punctuation marks. We don't have quotations like direct quotations like what we have in English. But what was needed was an accurate citation of another person through a correct representation of the content of what that person said. So what are the objections to inerrancy? This is one that's kind of confusing that I think you should know about. I've got three for you. First is that the Bible is only authoritative for matters of faith and practice. You may say, oh, okay, that makes good sense. It's an objection, though. It's an objection to inerrancy because what it's saying is that the Bible only relates to the things of faith and practice. It's the idea that the Bible's only place to teach us is directly related to our belief or conduct and could therefore have false statements, right? We can get the first half of that, but the second half of that is the, is the kicker here, guys. If the Bible is only inerrant to matters of faith and practice, that means, therefore, that there could be some sort of falsehood in the Bible. Interestingly, those who have held to this view within sneaky little camps of theological liberalism, have changed using the term inerrancy to infallibility. You may, if you open up a theological textbook, find the word infallibility. It's a slight on inerrancy. We can clearly see from 2 Timothy 3.16, the idea that Paul communicates is not that only certain pieces of the Bible are truth, but they are all truth. Everything is inspired by God. The second objection to inerrancy is the idea that we don't have any inerrant manuscripts. Therefore, talking about an inerrant Bible is misleading. Basically, what people who are making this claim is saying is that, okay, you want to say the Bible's inerrant in its original manuscripts? Well, those manuscripts have problems. That's what they're saying. And the reply that we make to that is that for 99% of the words of the Bible, 
we know exactly what the original manuscript said. That's a moot point. It's a weak argument. They probably heard it on the History Channel, to just be honest with you. They've probably heard somebody with a degree that's not even related to the Bible say that the Bible says these things, and guys, just don't listen to them. 99% of the manuscripts, we can have confidence in what they have originally said. 99% is really good. And the third objection to inerrancy is that people say that there are clear errors in the Bible. The Bible's full of errors. How do you reply to that? First, you go like this. You say, where? Verse and chapter, please. Where? I have actually had this said to me, you know, and I responded with, where are the errors? You know what response I got? Crickets. Crickets. Nothing. Because they didn't know the place. They just heard somebody say this. So where there are passages mentioned, though, I don't want to just leave you with the idea of, like, just ask them where, and they'll just never respond to you. They may respond. And when they do, what we often find is that when we carefully read those passages, that there are clear solutions right in the text. There are clear solutions. So carefully read the passage. And where it may seem like there's no immediate clarity, it may be helpful to, con- to consult commentaries. Uh, here's one I'll recommend to you. John Calvin's commentaries. Yes, he was alive in the 1500s. And yes, he tackled almost every objection that you could think about about error in the Bible. Go and read Calvin's commentaries. And if you need a copy, just come to my office. Fourth, if you consult commentaries and you don't know the idea of what's being said here, then what you might need is to find somebody who knows Hebrew or Greek. I know a little bit of Hebrew and Greek, and I got logos enough to say, if I don't know it, I at least can find a scholar who does know it. Ask somebody who has a knowledge of Hebrew and Greek to help you out. This is where the idea of a word's meaning might be helpful to us, like inspired in 2 Timothy 3 means breathed out. And finally, something to consider as you hear this objection is to consider the historical perspective. There is no new argument to the Bible. We, it's 2022, friends. There are no new arguments. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. There's no new arguments. There have been plenty of objectives. And if you may say, I heard this new objection to the word from the History Channel this week, likely there's somebody who had a historical heresy that you can look back in church history and say, hey, that's not unfamiliar. Antinomianism may be one. What's that? Hyper grace. All you need is grace, therefore you don't need to repent. That's a message we're hearing today. And people are making it sound like a shiny new thing. It's not. It's hundreds of years old. So what do I want you to take away from today? We believe, yes, that the Bible is God's word, that God breathed it out, that it's inerrant, that it doesn't have any error. Therefore, brothers and sisters, you can have confidence in God's word. You can indeed know what God has said. Guys, you then have a responsibility. Look into it. See what it said. Talk about it with other people. Live by it. Believer, not only do you have confidence in what God has said, but you also need to share what God has said. Jesus gave us a great commission, right? He gave us a great commission, not a great comfort. He didn't say just sit here and hear somebody tell you what God's word said every week. He said, hear it, observe it, teach it, live by it, share it with others. Go and make disciples. Guys, share God's word. Share God's word. And as you share it, share this, that the message of the Bible is real. It is real. It's a real message that is deserving of careful thought, that you should actually chew on what it says, and that you need to respond to the message of the Bible. Because at the end of the day, there are going to be people who are with God and people who are not. That's it. There's no in-between. People who belong to God and people who don't. So if you're not a Christian this morning, hear God's word, but respond. Repent and believe. 
Repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus to save you. It's the only way to be made right with God. And then start reading the Bible regularly. And maybe church members here, as you proclaim your faith and confess your faith, hear that final call to you as well. Read the Bible regularly. If we say we're a people of the word, are Bibles collecting dust on the shelf or are they open on our tables and the centerpiece of our lives? I want to live for God, but I'm going to tweet about it. For the love of God, put your Twitter away. Open your Bible. Guys, let me just make this plea to you too. If you don't own a physical Bible, buy one. Okay? We live in an age of distraction. I can have all of the best intentions to open up my, my phone and use the Bible app. And you know what I often do is open it up and I'm like, oh, message, right? Because I've got squirrel brain, right? Yeah. Like, oh, shiny. <laughs> We're going to go there. Right? Satan wants to distract us. Open up your physical copy of God's word. Bring a physical Bible to church. Make it meaty. Make it thick. Make it leather. Make it glorious. Make it whatever gets you excited. Get a copy of God's word and bring it and read it. And don't put it down. And when questions arise, open it and say, God, speak. Has he spoken? We believe the Bible. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us a confident word that we can believe in and know you and live for your glory. I pray now as we continue to worship you, may we do so with hope and anticipation for your word tells us that you're coming again and that our ultimate purpose is to be to sing your praises forever and ever. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, before the worship team comes back up to lead us, I'm going to lead us